This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Alley. This week's guest is Paul Drazik, Agriculture Trade Consultant with DTB Associates. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by CHS Inc. CHS is a leading global agribusiness owned by farmers, ranchers, and cooperatives across the United States. Learn more at chsinc.com. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Paul Drazik next. In rural America, there are three things that never change. The land, the determination of the families that farm it, and the loyalty of their co-ops, which provide the markets, inputs, and agronomic expertise farmers and ranchers need to stay profitable. CHS, the nation's leading cooperative, is proud to connect member cooperatives and producers to the value of an energy, grains, and food company they own. To learn more, visit chsinc.com. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Paul Drazik has a rich 45-plus year career in service to U.S. agriculture and global trade policy. There's no doubt U.S. attitude toward trade has shifted with the Trump administration, and Drazik says rhetoric from the campaign trail and now the White House has had an impact on existing trade relationships. Drazik says trade deficits are not the only way to measure the value of a trade deal. The object of trade agreements is uh, to benefit both sides. If you increase jobs as a result of an agreement and the other side increases jobs as a result of the trade agreement, just because one increases the number of jobs due to increased exports doesn't mean those jobs are coming from the other country. good example, by the way, is Mexico. When we first initiated NAFTA, back in 1994, I believe it was, our bilateral trade was more or less in balance, and each side uh, about $50 billion. And uh, now we're exporting $236 billion to Mexico, which has been an increase in jobs in the United States as a result of those exports of 4 million jobs. Obviously, Mexico is, their exports have grown more. That's why we have a trade deficit. And that's created millions of jobs in Mexico. I, I don't know how many there, but, uh, the, uh, the net result is both countries have increased jobs as a result of that trade. So just because you look at the bottom line of a trade relationship between two countries and you're running at a deficit, do you automatically assume that that's a bad deal? No, you can't. Uh, it, it, that's not the way you look at it. Now, uh, I'd be the first to say that uh, there have been jobs that have moved to Mexico uh, from the United States, uh, and, and that's, that's well known. Ma- uh, companies have closed in the U.S. and moved to Mexico, and jobs have been lost. But the idea that uh, the solution could lie in declaring this a bad NAFTA, a bad deal, and pulling out of it, which was almost, it almost happened uh, about two months ago, <laughs> And uh, that would have been catastrophic, and it would have cost millions of jobs in the United States. Quite a bit of saber-rattling between the U.S. and China, and we do have a huge trade imbalance there. If you were advising the president, if you were talking to others about this, how do we deal with China? I mean, obviously, we owe them a lot of money. We sell them a lot of agriculture products. They are key with regard to national security. Where do we, how do we handle them? Well, one thing you can do, which we have done in the past, is when trade is unfair, and clearly that's happened, we've taken many cases against China to the World Trade Organization, and we've won, we've won them. 
the interesting thing that people, most people don't realize is that if you actually challenge China with respect to unfair trade practices in the World Trade Organization, they're a relatively new member there uh, in, the, in the organization. They have almost every time brought their system into conformity with the rules. So you can you can go after them uh, if it's unfair trade. You can challenge them. We've put uh, anti-dumping duties on countless Chinese products, including in steel, and that has resulted in uh, dramatic reductions in steel exports from China um, to the point where they're not even in the top ten of exporters of steel to the U.S. anymore. So those are ways to do it. Uh, but if you go after China. Uh, with just flat tariffs uh, as a protective, a protectionist measure, it's going to backfire, and it's going to backfire against our agricultural exports. To me, it's easy to understand why agriculture can be so uh, concerned about negotiation and renegotiation, because if we have a positive balance of trade with a country or countries, and suddenly we reopen a deal and we lose access or we lose favor, that's direct to the bottom line of farm income. Absolutely, and uh, farmers are sensitive to fluctuations in exports probably as much as any sector of the economy. You, you can see it uh, in something as simple as uh, a port a slowdown, uh, dock workers strike, something like that, and boom, farmers feel it if we're not exporting, if, if boats can't flow. That's the the best example, and and the problem with some of these trade things is that you know it, it would be a, akin to an export embargo self-imposed on ourselves if we were to take protectionist actions against countries that would result in their retaliation against us. And and farmers, you know, they they have a history of uh, having uh, feelings, strong feelings about export embargoes, but that would pale in comparison those export embargoes we suffered through uh, in the past would pale in comparison to what would happen if countries retaliated against us in a trade war. Can our country afford to make agriculture a pawn in trade deals, to give up ag to gain in other areas? Oh, no. Politically, economically, and any other way, uh, that would be be devastating. Our agriculture and our, our sector and our agricultural exports create jobs not just on the farm but across the economy. There's a multiplier effect, uh, you know, people that service farmers, uh, you know, the processing industry, transportation, et cetera, et cetera. Trading off agriculture to get something in manufacturing would be a very unwise step to take. At the same time, if you look at the the voters that gave this president the White House, he tried to satisfy the Rust Belt and the farm belt or the corn belt at the same time, and both have much different views with regard to global trade. Yes, they do. The people are suffering in in the Rust Belt. Uh, There are jobs being lost, but not always. In fact, more often than not, not to trade agreements. One has to remember that uh, or realize that uh, a lot of the jobs that are lost in the Rust Belt uh, have been lost not because of trade or trade agreements, but because of automation, productivity gains, and so forth, uh, workers being able to produce more or companies with fewer workers. So a lot of that has happened, and I think most studies have shown that that is by far and away a bigger cause of job losses. The Trump administration has suggested they would rather work on a bilateral basis than in multilateral trade deals, hence their withdrawal from the TPP. So is it possible for the U.S. to be as successful in opening the doors of trade bilaterally as opposed to multilaterally? 
when I heard that during the campaign, I was scratching my head because I really had serious doubts that that would be possible. First of all, for us to pull out of an agreement that we actually pushed forward on, it wouldn't have happened without the United States, and then we signed it. We signed the agreement. To not implement it afterwards sent a message to countries, well, well maybe we should kind of play it cool with the U.S. How, you know, if we reach an agreement with them, um, how do we know it's actually ever going to be implemented? We, you know, Japan, for example, made some um, pretty significant uh, politically difficult uh, decisions and concessions as part of the TPP agreement, and they passed it through their legislature. So it's ready to go for them. And now the U.S. is saying, let's uh, let's have a bilateral. And, and Japan, first of all, they're looking to see what's going to happen, what the U.S. is going to be demanding from Mexico and Canada and NAFTA. And they're pursuing uh, TPP with the other 11 countries. Uh, uh, I, I don't know whether that's in, going to end up happening, but... Uh, it could well be that they'll just go ahead and they'll say, uh, let's, let's forget about the U.S. If that happens, we're going to suffer from having all those countries lowering tariffs on products amongst themselves. And we're, our products are still going to face high tariffs in all 11. During the Obama administration and now the early days of the Trump administration, how many bilateral deals or how many deals has the U.S. negotiated? And, and then how about the rest of the world? Are we keeping pace? We have not kept pace in terms of agreements. Uh, we've gone long stretches without uh, negotiating free trade agreements. Since 2000, the year 2000, we've uh, negotiated, I think it's 13 trade agreements, uh, counting CAFTA, Central America Free Trade Agreement, as one. That involves five countries. And then, of course, TPP, which was concluded. I mean, that was an agreement that was signed, but will never take effect for us. So that was an effort. But in the meantime, there are a lot of free trade agreements going on right now, uh, some already in place. Uh, the EU has a free trade agreement with Mexico, with Canada. Uh, it hasn't uh, uh, taken effect yet, but it will soon. The EU just uh, announced it with Japan that they're going to conclude an agree- a bilateral agreement, uh, which would have an effect on our, our ability to compete in Japan with European dairy products and pork, et cetera. So we're, we're not keeping pace. And, of course, nothing is in, in the works. We're modernizing NAFTA, but we've got no other trade agreements in the works at the moment. Uh, people talk about the U.K., but I have doubts that that's going to happen anytime soon because they can't negotiate with us till they're out of the EU. We'll just have to see what kind of benefits we might get from the U.K. agreement, but I think that's years off. The other countries of the TPP, and that would include Japan, New Zealand, and Australia, are looking to move ahead with that uh, multilateral deal. So what's the fallout from the U.S. withdrawal, and have we seen the downside of that fallout yet? We haven't seen, I don't think, an economic downside or fallout from uh, pulling out of TPP yet. I think we have seen a political or geopolitical fallout to our detriment. As you said, those countries are negotiating amongst themselves to proceed with TPP with 11 instead of 12 countries. Uh, some of those countries are now negotiating with uh, China uh, or talking to China. There's there's uh, a number of different initiatives underway that involve Asia, Pacific, uh New Zealand is talking to Mexico, Colombia, Peru, and Chile, the so-called Pacific Alliance. 
We have free trade agreements with all four of those countries, but any preferential benefits from those agreements we have in dairy will be lost if New Zealand uh, cuts a deal with them. So we will feel the economic impact down the road, but I don't think we have yet. With regard to the renegotiation of the North American Free Trade Agreement, is what was agreed to in the TPP with Canada and Mexico, is that the baseline for negotiations from the U.S.? Well, it probably should be. Um, but the truth of the matter is, uh, I don't think that the administration, the Trump administration, could bring back a modernized NAFTA that really is just patterned after TPP, uh, in terms of TPP. There are a lot of new ideas and new modern approaches to dealing with new trade issues that have arisen since NAFTA was implemented. So there's a lot of things in TPP that could be included and maybe will be in a modernized NAFTA. But President Trump ran on TPP being one of the worst agreements ever. So uh, it's going to be hard to say, okay, we've modernized NAFTA by, by making it more like TPP. That's going to be difficult. Plus, uh, it's the irony here is that uh, there are a lot of Democrats uh, who would agree with the president on the need for uh, uh, dropping out of bad trade agreements and so forth. So whatever is done with respect to NAFTA ultimately is going to have to go back to Congress for a vote. And I can imagine that being a, a, a bloody, bloody battle to get that whatever is negotiated through. And it's conceivable it will never get through. So keeping with that same thought then, whatever the result of this renegotiation of NAFTA, does that then become the baseline for what the U.S. would expect from other countries that we might be negotiating uh, or attempting to, to negotiate a bilateral trade deal? I think the short answer is yes. I think that uh, whatever happens with NAFTA, the approach we take uh, with respect to our efforts to uh, eliminate the trade deficits we run with uh, Mexico and Canada, uh, if successful, that's the approach we'll, the administration will pursue with other countries. Uh, other countries might look at that approach and say, we're not going along with that, or they might agree to it. We, we just don't know. But I, I think the answer is yes to that. As you mentioned, Congress, I'll float this because 2018 is not far around the corner. Did we see the different parties' attitude toward trade change, and do you anticipate additional change as we start talking about the midterm election? It's interesting because the parties in Congress, I don't think, uh, have changed. You know, members of Congress have changed very much in their attitudes towards trade. I think Democrats tend to be more protectionist in their their outlook. Um, They look at trade agreements as... uh, you know, uh, the idea would be to restrict imports to, to protect uh, jobs here in, this, in, in the U.S. Uh, Republicans tend to be much more favorable in Congress toward uh, trade and trade agreements. Uh, but if you look at polls of the actual, you know, voters, I just saw one the other day that said a little over 70 percent of Democratic voters support uh, trade agreements and they support NAFTA. And the number on the Republican side among voters has declined. So the flip situation seems to be occurring among voters as opposed to people in Congress. What does the U.S. have to gain or to lose in these NAFTA talks? What we have to gain, I think, is, in my view, is my, my view, is uh, modernization of the agreement. Uh, we can get some things done that weren't accomplished in the original.
original NAFTA, we could expand our exports of dairy products to, to Canada. We could deal with some sanitary and phytosanitary issues, uh, maybe strengthen the disciplines on sanitary and phytosanitary matters So, with respect to agriculture. And the downside, obviously, is if we were to fail to modernize NAFTA, and as a result, the president carried out his threat to pull out People in the agriculture sector have characterized that as being a catastrophic uh, result for agriculture. Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue is obviously an ally for trade. He spent some time in Mexico with his counterpart there, and uh, when he spoke with the press, he said he didn't think that the Mexican government, that the Mexican agriculture was really interested in the bottom line of importing product from the Southern Hemisphere, from Argentina and Brazil. Is there fallout that's already taken place and... Should we assume that the status quo remains the same? I think Mexicans have been looking to diversify their source of supply away from the U.S. as sort of a just-in-case exercise. Um, and I think to a certain extent they, that, that effort to you know, look around for other sources of supply has resulted in actual <laughs> sales. Uh, purchases by Mexicans. Now, I think what what where's there's a, a bit of confusion is people. You know, they talk to Mexican government officials, and the Mexican government people say, "Well, no, I don't think we're we're really doing any of that stuff." But it's not the government that does it; it's private trade that that's looking at the situation and deciding what they're going to do. So, and I think that's what's happening. We, I think, will see an impact. If it looks like we're being heavy-handed with Mexico uh, and the Mexicans are proud people, they're going to be they're going to react negatively to that. And if it sours our trade relations, then I think we'll see uh, an effect on our exports there. A story in the Wall Street Journal suggested to keep an eye on agriculture and the NAFTA renegotiation, and they mentioned a number of different issues: labor, trade deficit, rules of origin, currency manipulation, and oh yes, immigration. Paul, from your perspective and spending time in trade over your career, what do you see are the landmines in these negotiations that could throw it off track? I think the biggest landmine of all would be for the U.S. to approach the negotiations uh, from the standpoint of whatever we do, we have to we have to see a reduction in our trade deficit, especially with Mexico. Uh, that I think would. Uh, sour the negotiations uh, and, and make them make it very very difficult to to reach a, an acceptable agreement. The idea that you know we're going to impose new restrictions on imports from Mexico, we're going to do it in a way that would generate money to pay for a border wall or something like that. I think would make reaching a final agreement and have to impossible. Then, if you are leading the U.S. negotiation. What's the most that you can hope for out of this renegotiation? <laughs> That's a tough one. Yeah, if it were me, of course, uh, I wouldn't be put in the position at the current time, but if it were me and I were king, I would probably revert back to the TPP and use that as a starting point for NAFTA uh, renegotiation and get off the uh, kick of uh, trying to use the uh, negotiation and a new agreement to achieve balanced trade between the countries. I, I just think that's a, a non-starter, and it's probably doomed to failure. Well, Paul Drazek, you have spent a career serving U.S. agriculture on the global trade front, and we appreciate your service, and we appreciate the opportunity to have had you as a guest here on AgriPulse Open Mic. 
It is open mic, Paul, and now you have an open forum. Well, it's good to be with you, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, you're right. I've been doing this for over 45 years now, and uh, uh, it's been my privilege to work all that time to promote U.S. agricultural exports. It's been a challenge. Uh, it's uh, probably even a bigger challenge today. Our thanks to Paul Drazik, Ag Trade Consultant with DTB Associates, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by CHS Inc. CHS is a leading global agribusiness owned by farmers, ranchers, and cooperatives across the United States. Learn more at chsinc.com. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Dowling.